there were moments when we were shooting some of those long passages where I would get the goosebumps, you know, and Quincy Jones says that goosebumps are God's lightning rod. You know, you can't fake goosebumps. You can't. And so I, I did think to myself, if I don't know what the camera's picking up, but if the camera's picking up any of the spirit that's flying around in this room right now, we might be in good shape. There could be some special moments in this movie. Thankfully, I think some of that is, it ended up in there. Hello and welcome to the Awardist from Entertainment Weekly, taking you inside this year's top contenders for the Oscars and more of the industry's biggest awards. I'm David Canfield, EW's Movies Editor, joined as always by my co-host Clarissa Cruz, EW's Executive Editor. And today for our season finale, we've got a star-studded panel. Back with us to discuss Sunday's bizarre Oscars and its many twists and turns, our awards expert Joey Nolfi and critic-at-large Leah Greenblatt. Hi guys! Hello. Has everybody recovered? No. No. Totally normal no. night. No. <laughs> totally <laughs> normal night. Totally normal year. And this is going to be a totally normal conversation. Uh, uh, and later, double, double nominee Leslie Odom Jr. will join us to discuss One Night in Miami uh, and his first Oscar campaign ending uh, with such a historic twofer. Um, but first, let's get into this. Steven Soderbergh decided to produce this year's COVID-safe train station Oscars like a movie which I suppose makes sense since everyone flops once in a while, right? That's that's what happened here. Oh, that's here. my word. Yes. You don't own the word flop, Joey. <laughs> no, I mean, that wasn't a shade. That was an excitement. Like, oh, yes. I mean, can, can we really consider a show a flop when Glenn Close won her first Oscar for Best Live Action Short Film for her performance of DeButt? <laughs> And at a show where digital crisis manager Laura Dern did not have to put out any virtual fires. But I feel like Daniel Kaluuya's mother is now going to hire digital crisis manager Laura Dern to manage her post-Oscars campaign after her son talked about her sex life on Hollywood's Biggest Night. I have to say, given all that, uh, I agree with you, Joey. I, I think that I'm ultimately happy with the Oscars because... Nothing necessarily would have made sense this year, and they were they ended in such a spectacularly unintentionally misguided fashion that it is one we will certainly remember. And while there was an element of cruelty to it, uh, I don't think Steven Soderbergh is necessarily mad at how it went, knowing knowing how his his mind tends to work. Yeah. I feel like Warren Beatty will appreciate being knocked off <laughs> possibly the number one spot yeah. of awkward Oscar moments going yeah. for it. I think yeah. so too. Um, well, let's talk Unless about... Unless you really wanted to hold on to that. That may have been a badge of honor. I don't know, but yeah. <laughs> we always blame Warren Beatty, but it was really Faye Dunaway. <laughs> yeah, it was Faye. Uh-huh. grabbed the card from Warren and just said La La Land because she was annoyed with him. Like We want to blame Dick Tracy, but it's really Mommy Dearest. <laughs> it is. And perhaps fitting. Um... I'm curious what everyone thought um, going into this. I personally loved the opening, which did feel very cinematic. I am a huge Regina King fan. So that like one take of her walking onto the stage with the credits, um, it, it felt very different. It certainly didn't have the kind of spectacle or epic scale that we're used to from these things. And it was definitely an, an indication of where things were headed. Um, how did everyone feel starting there uh, and going into the ceremony. 
Yeah. I mean, it felt good. I mean, Regina walking through the station, it felt wonderful. I was like, okay, this is going to be amazing. David, I think I texted you. I was like, I love this already. Not even yeah. 60 seconds into it. And then it just all went downhill and from it, there. An hour later, <laughs> this is awful. Yeah, yeah. Really, yes. yeah. I mean, the, it, it was that lack of structure. I mean, it felt unstructured and off the rails in a way that I don't think they intended. I feel like they wanted it to feel chill and intimate. And hey, we're not going to play people off. But the danger is when you leave this industry to its own devices and don't keep them on track, <laughs> they're going to give a five minute acceptance speech on South African cinema and bonding with octopuses and there was, was just a, re- a lack of urgency i mean not playing yeah. clips in favor of these weird personal anecdotes was so bizarre i feel like yeah the the misinterpretation here is that casual moviegoers or people tuning into the oscars want more a more personal vibe with the nominees but if they don't know who the screenwriters are in the first place they won't care what their inspirations on cinema were or for the first time they went to the movies as a kid they want to see stars and the best way to do that is playing clips from the movies that they know Right, especially with so many people, especially with so many people not having seen, I think, a lot of the movies that were nominated. I mean, that just when I was, you know, talking anecdotally with civilians, you know, people who don't (laughs) do this for a living, you know, they they miss seeing the clips because they didn't see a lot of these movies. So that was their chance to figure out what all the all the, you know, attention is about. So I think taking that out and then also I never thought that I would be missing the playing off people for their speeches, but you do kind of need that structure in order for something like this to work. I think that beginning with the, with Regina King set us up for something that we're like, oh, this is going to be really cool, but I don't think it actually delivered. Yep. I think it was funny. My boyfriend said, as we looked at Union Station, you can, you can see it, but you can't smell it because normally it's kind of a pungent place to be. It's actually where I was getting a lot of my COVID tests at the pop-up at Union Station. So the fact that they were able to make that look beautiful, I think was impressive, you know, even though I was getting sort of a hospital floral arrangement vibe from some of the backdrops. And, you know, I didn't have, it didn't have the sort of grandeur, I think, but it had the built-in beauty of the station, right? But then as soon as we started not getting the clips, I really got worried because I thought, this is not reaching, you know, they've already talked about, like Clarissa did, this, the relative obscurity of the selection of films this year, even though, of course, we've been immersed in them in our little wordist world. And, I mean, don't you always count on that just for animated short? You have, we want to know some sense of what these candidates are and these contenders. And and we very much needed that, you know, and I, and I know that Hollywood is so in love with itself and it loves the huge... Um, to build up these movies, but showing singular scenes from the movies was not as indicative of what they were about as it would have been if we'd gotten these mini trailers too, Yeah, you know? And so it just felt weird that so often the commercials were the most cinematic thing about the show. Yes. It, 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 it devolved into this bizarre talking fest where you would have like a cinematography category and you have like, I'm not, this is not accurate, but like Don Cheadle, talking for five for five minutes about Eric Messerschmitt, like the first movie he ever saw. Show without, like, don't tell. Show yeah. don't tell. Like, uh-huh. especially right. in those kinds of categories or sound or like, I feel like traditionally you would get a sense of what the nominees were there for in the yeah. tech and below the line categories. And I mean, my parents were texting me in a fury. They were not happy that they did not get to see those beautiful Nomadland vistas when it came time for cinematography. I mean, if they wanted to do this and make it look cinematic, they should have taken a page from the SAG Awards and they should have actually pre-filmed it. 
I mean, that would have made it, they could have made it much more exciting if you're weaving in clips and audio and images and actual scripted things to make it a movie. I mean, that's give what us, I feel like they were us going the for. the color dream coat, like right, paint as the right. picture. Yeah. Why, right, why do it dress a live ceremony where things can go wrong and people can ramble on if your goal is to make something cinematic and engaging? Why do that? Especially in the pandemic era Oscars, this is your time to do something different and experimental. And why not just do it like SAG did it and, pre, and pre-film it? I, I don't get it. I wonder how they would have dealt with that ending if they did pre-film it. <laughs> well, it probably would have gone down a lot better. Um, <laughs> Segway. Yeah. Uh, Change the order, the, move it around a little bit. <laughs> the, yeah. the, the, the idea of making it cinematic, I do think in their minds, this was the big gambit, right? That they would not announce Best Picture last because Nomadland was such an overwhelming front runner. And instead they- So believed- was Chadwick. So was Chadwick. I think Nomadland yeah. was even more, but yes. You're so, right, you're uh, right. But obviously they had the confidence that they would end <laughs> uh, uh, with a sort of note of bittersweet catharsis and Chadwick Boseman posthumously winning Best Actor. Um, I think after the BAFTA Awards where Anthony Hopkins won over Chadwick, that should have told you like there is a 1% chance at minimum that Chadwick will lose. And that is enough to tell you you should not do this Uh because he wasn't a lock anymore. He was a very strong favorite. Um, But I think that that was the whole they were completely building up to that, this sort of rambling weird affair that ends with this sort of breakneck like series of twists in the structure. Um, did you guys feel like in all of that, and we'll get to like Anthony Hopkins's face winning the final award of the night, <laughs> his very stylish, <laughs> his very stylish, uh, shot. Um, did you feel like Nomadland lost its moment a little bit? I, I sort of felt that way, especially because Chloe won director so early. Yeah. I mean, I think that, I think in, in a way it, it, well, I mean, yes, I do agree with that. And I think it also backfired because people at home were sort of um, used to ending the show on Best Picture. So they just, they, they, they're like, oh, okay, we're done. And so <laughs> maybe they might have even yeah. missed. Yeah, they might. I mean, that's what I just heard from the civilians that I keep referring to is that they, oh, I turned it off because I thought <laughs> Best Picture was, was done. And they, and they didn't Clarissa, see, who are they didn't these civilians? <laughs> The ones that text me, the ones that text me once, once a year, you know, when it's the Oscars, because because they know I'm watching and then and, and they're and they're right. So I actually find it a very good, you know, Focus selection group. of of what yeah of, of what people are, are thinking. And so I think in that way that was that was kind of a fail. Um, but yeah, I do I do think um, not having that final glorious moment for Nomadland um, was a little bit, you know, of a disappointment. But um, but it sort of also goes along with what's going on this year, what this year has has, has been. It's it's just been weird and strange and uh, unexpected and um, you know full of surprises. And full of full of slightly off kilter camera angles that made me a little bit want to lose my mind. And I say that and I say that as a huge fan of Steven Soderbergh's Let Them All Talk, which came well, out earlier this year. It's, it's it's funny because I do think to an extent this Oscars was the Let Them All Talk taste test because and I, 
I, I told this to my parents when they were like, this is terrible. And at the beginning, I was kind of into it, um, particularly like Laura Dern, whose like mission in life was to talk for 20 minutes about the five best supporting actor nominees. Like she was she's never been happier than she was in that moment. I don't she think put on those glasses no, but- and went to town. Again, we know so much more about the plot of The Secrets of Nim than we do about those animated stories. <laughs> yeah. actually explained it. Strong women, strong women in yes. cinema, Leah. <laughs> Larissa Witherspoon. The morning show is inspired by the mouse mother of The Secrets of Nim. We did learn there were some fun facts in the show, for sure. Uh, but anyway, I, I did notice that our, our photo editor tweeted... Um, that the the screen grabs from the show were actually higher quality and less blurry than the actual stills provided by the ceremony because and this reminded me of let them all talk clarissa i don't know if you remember when we had to go through those selects of of official images from the movie and they were very low quality i think this is just (laughs) steven soderbergh's thing that he just refuses to like (laughs) provide like actual like high-res images for his own productions (laughs) yeah yeah. It's art, David. It's called art. Anyway, very insidery, <laughs> but uh, I thought that was an interesting parallel between his actual film and the film of mm-hmm. his Oscars. <laughs> um, well, let's get into the ending. Joey, you were probably the first person I saw of the night to um, indicate after the father went adapted screenplay that Anthony Hopkins was looking like yeah. the slight favorite and Our best Nostradamus. actor. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I, I think that you and I recently we've talked about this we have admitted that we have fallen into the mistake of not listening to our gut with things we always sort of entertain the idea of what ends up happening but then we're too scared to actually go with it and i think you and i were like right on the edge of being like yes okay anthony is going to win this especially after bafta um i i I don't know i i think that um you know, BAFTA, like you said to me last night, I'm not taking credit for this quote, but you said something like the BAFTAs indicate where momentum is uh, because in, in proximity to where they stand with the Oscars date. That's important to look at. Um, and I think this solidifies that BAFTA is probably the most important precursor. Yep. I just think the reality is that journalists and pundits got ahead of themselves with this one. I mean, if you look at something too, like Promising Young Woman, I mean, in reality, that was never going to win anything other than screenplay. It's my favorite movie of the year. I think it's the best movie movie of the year. It carries my favorite of the five nominees. But for an Academy that nominated Trial of the Chicago 7 six times, I mean, <laughs> that's a movie that's too challenging for them. I, they, they might listen to individually a social call or the conversation responding to a certain film and give it nominations, but they're not going to vote for something to win that makes them feel uncomfortable. And I think that they're also not thinking in that group think mentality and they're not thinking, well, we have to honor Chadwick. They're thinking I'm going to vote for what I like the best. And the, the momentum as we saw at BAFTA was with Anthony and that's what carried into the Oscars. They like what they like. They vote for what they vote for. And Anthony was that this year. I'm just I'm just wondering if some of these have been on streaming instead of in, like if some of these had like Minari was twenty dollars for so long still promising young woman was yeah. twenty dollars for so long still and obviously Academy voters are getting these things yeah. sent to their homes but but the, just the accessibility because we had so many Netflix nominations and so many Netflix wins even if they weren't in the hugest categories do you think just the just the whole idea of literally passively you can just click onto netflix and see so many of these whereas other other ones of them was a little bit more of a walk i i I think it's an interesting point 
Well, I, I think I'll just say something very quickly, David. And then I, I just think that th- this it's that to me doesn't seem like it's necessarily as big of a factor because I feel like the reason why they get screeners at home is because they they already are watching things at home on their own. You know, like right. they they choose to put the DVD in the in the player and watch it. That's how they've been voting for these things but for just years. For the so. general impact it has on culture, I guess, if it can't be mm. passively streamed, sort mm. of on these very very you know the biggest couple outlets like like one out of Miami or Ma Rainey and. Um, mm-hmm. But yeah, and I was also thinking a lot of 1917 last year, how that came in and changed the game, and that was really late. And you yep. know, the father was on the on the on the later end of things, and it, it's sort of the definition of an Oscar pick, right? Mm-hmm. Even though yeah. David, you and I saw it a year and a half ago, a year and a half ago, and without like any without any indication that this would be the movie that we would be talking about in this moment, no. 2021 post Oscars. But worth noting that Anthony is phenomenal in the movie. Yeah. I mean, he yeah. is. But anyway, go on. Yeah. And it's a beautiful movie. And yeah. And very and, and incredibly well adapted from a play, which is so hard to do. And we've seen it fall down so yeah. many times. And he actually elevated and transformed the yeah. play, which is especially as a first time film director. I mean, it's bananas, yeah. but yes. Totally. I mean, I'm wondering, you know, I guess getting back to the sort of Chadwick of it all. I mean, if he didn't pass away, how would this, how do you think this would have played out? Do you think it would have been Anthony's from the beginning? And and there was just sort of all this noise about Chadwick because of what's been happening throughout the season with him winning everything? No, I I think that Chadwick still would have been in the conversation and still would have been nominated um, because I don't think you can credit Chadwick for boosting that film overall. I think Viola Davis is probably a a, a large credit to that too. Um, So yeah, I think that you know, a lot of the conversation throughout the whole year was that this Chadwick would have succeeded here, whether he was living or deceased. So, um, yeah, I'm not sure how much that would have played into it. Um, because But we could get back into category fraud with some of these Daniel and Chadwick. And I right. mean, those, I think, could have been reordered very easily and had a very different outcome. Mm-hmm. Yes. Oh, Chadwick? And should have been. Wait, wait, Chadwick? Just in terms of who yeah. wasn't supporting and who was, and I mean, no, like a, Keith and Daniel, yeah. and and just all of the all of the oh, sort of oh, machinations oh, that yeah, happen yeah. every year mm-hmm. with supporting versus, you know, I mean, yeah. I would have in some ways said supporting for Viola again, but obviously that wasn't where she wanted to go with that. And we said that too. Yeah, the movie yeah. is her name, of course. You know, it is <laughs> Ma Rainey's movie, right. but still, she's not physically on screen to the extent that a lot of I would say best actresses have been, and I mean, whereas. There is no promising young woman, obviously, without Carrie in pretty much every scene, and and yeah. mm-hmm. you know. But this is that's an every year story. Yeah, of course. Yeah, I think. But Leah, you bring up an interesting point about Netflix because I, I think at this point, it's safe to say that Netflix is not not very good at closing. They don't. They they haven't been able to win anything beyond Alfonso Cuarón winning directing for Roma. And Laura Dern winning Supporting Actress for Marriage Story. I feel like every year, the past few years, it's been like, this is the year that Netflix takes over. And especially, like, what narr- what more of a narrative would you need than a pandemic where everyone's forced to watch movies at home? And Netflix is the only studio that has this, like, huge, significant slate of contenders. I mean, along with Amazon, but Amazon didn't have nearly as many. Um, and then the first warning sign was Netflix only got two Best Picture nominations, which, given the amount, of contenders they had, you know, Ma Rainey not getting in, uh, in addition to others, was notable. And then 
they didn't win any of the big eight categories and a lot of the older players held their ground like searchlight pictures really knows this game better than anybody and nomadland dominated uh sony pictures classics I feel like they're always criticized for their very slow, targeted rollouts of their movies. I remember this was true for Call Me By Your Name a few years ago as well. They were behind The Father. By the time Oscar nominations came out, I don't think anyone in the general public had seen that movie. Like, nobody had seen Mm -hmm. it. But they knew who they were getting that movie to, and that was true right until Oscar night. Um, And then you had A24 behind Minari, Focus behind Promising Young Woman. Do you guys think there's still a big streamer bias or is it just a case of Netflix not having the movies? Overage. I mean, they had the movie in Penguin Bloom. They just chose not to push it. <laughs> and didn't push it at all. Oh. Joey had a strategy at Netflix. Uh, he they, was they, they, yeah, they could have listened to me. Um, no, I think it's the quality. I, I hate to say quality of the films, but like you look at the movies that we talked about this year as being the ones we weren't as excited about. I mean, Mank Mm -hmm. and Trial of the Chicago (laughs) 7. I mean, when Netflix is so innovative and they have done so many things, but they are pushing, this year at least, pushing like the most basic Oscar fair there is. I mean, Trial of the Chicago 7 is boring. It's lame. I'm sorry. It is. And um, it's not a bad film, but it's not exciting. It's not something that you watch and that you go that's my best picture. I mean, it yeah. just, I, I don't know. I think it's, it's the quality. I think they're, they're um, taking an innovative approach to basic material. And, and to the, I think to the whole auteur thing where they're giving blank, you know, sort of blank checks to people like David Fincher or, you know, an Aaron Sorkin. And then you're getting maybe not the best of these guys, but you're getting a prestige thing to kind of hang your hat on and a, and a big event. Film, but I felt the same. I did think it was interesting when I was looking at a lot of comments on different uh, sites where a lot of people said they kind of signed on to that whole Bill Maher. This was such a dreary year, and yeah, and, and the that was a sentiment so that was more pervasive than people would admit. And then they would say, "But Chicago Seven gave me action. It gave me drama. It gave me life." And I was like, "Really?" Because to me, that was such a corny film, and I. Yeah. Thought Abdul Mateen was fantastic in it. I, I did think that Sasha Baron Cohen was great in it. I thought Mark Rylance was great, but I thought it was a corny ass movie, and there yep. was a lot of issues with just the way that it was presented. Even though, because it's intrinsically a great story, it's a fascinating story, and it's a true story. But yeah, I think I don't think that those were the best films, and and I have a bias in my heart. But to see that little, you know, Sony Pictures classic logo come up on the screen, like that does say. I, I, I'm invested in the quality of these studios that are so yes. choosy still and so small. Mm-hmm. I mean, how many movies does Searchlight put out a year, right? So, yeah, especially last so that, year. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, and we know how many projects Netflix puts out a year. So, yeah. you know. Well, it's also interesting, like, what they decide to put put their power behind because I thought White Tiger was so... Yes! Uh, the, the White Tiger. That's and. Great. And but I feel like they didn't get much of a of a push, but that would definitely have been a passion pick. I think it could have gone further if it had more force behind it. But I feel like Netflix chose, um, you know, to put their 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 force elsewhere. Um, but I, but maybe I mean, I don't know. I felt like the White Tiger sort of resonated more uh, this year and, and probably would have gone further, I think, if it had more attention. No acting nominations at all. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I would have loved to see, you know, yeah. they didn't they didn't really put anything behind it in the. F- fact that it did get in for screenplay if you talk to academy members 
who had seen The White Tiger, that was a favorite movie of a lot of theirs. It really played well in the industry. And Ramin Barani got nominated for screenplay despite the movie not having an ounce of the campaign that Mank or Trial had. I think Defy Bloods is one that they did push hard and still didn't really uh, make its way through. But, you know, I, I think if The Trial of Chicago 7 were a great movie, it would have won. Like, that is a movie that the Academy would go for. But it, but it, it just wasn't there. Mm -hmm. And I think even, Mank, you could make a similar argument where it's this passion project that some people are going to connect to very intensely, but it's just not going to play enough. What about the life ahead? Um, <laughs> Sophia, <laughs> Sophia Flopleren, I feel so bad. Um, I feel, I do want to talk about that movie because I, you know, we were all pulling for Diane Warren and well, spiritually pulling for Diane Warren, um, but maybe not ready to. That's a weird her, song category this year. Very strange. Again, yeah. did we hear the song? But no, we were not allowed to. Not even in the actual it was ceremony. It was only pre-ceremony, pre which that Husevic performance was better than anything. That so good on the, the telecast. I'm like, why would you not open the show with this fantastic moment that would have drawn people in? And then immediately gone to the screenplay category and played the Carrie Mulligan spit clip that they didn't play until the end of the show and draw people in. That is like, and then Glenn Close doing the button. You have a great ceremony. Yes. Um, well, before we go, let's let's quickly touch on the other uh, big winners of the night: Yejun Yoon and Daniel Kaluuya winning the supporting categories. Um, both of them, I thought, gave such great speeches that very that very much fit the night in their own way. Uh, Yoon <laughs> was just, I mean, she's just like, I want her to be on every, every award season now. She's just so charming and funny, but also has this sort of regality that is, uh, she kind of brought the glamour, I think, to this season that, that was otherwise missing in, in a very distinctive way. And then Daniel Kaluuya talked about how his parents had sex, and yeah. then he won an Oscar. And his mother's yeah. face when he said that was great. Yeah. <laughs> so. We're going to take a quick break. When we come back, Clarissa will speak with Leslie Odom Jr., double nominee for One Night in Miami. Stay with us. Please enjoy my interview with Leslie Odom Jr., double nominee for One Night in Miami. I'm here with Leslie Odom Jr., double Oscar nominee and star of One Night in Miami. Leslie, welcome. Thanks for joining us. Double Oscar nominee. I will never <laughs> get used to that. I will never get used to that, but it's really cool. I'm doing well. How are you doing? Good, good, good. Well, the first thing I want to do is just compliment you on your suit last night. It was iconic. <laughs> The SAG Awards suit, he wore a, uh, I want to say the designer is Berluti. Um, Berluti. Iconic ombre. I, I mean, I didn't even see what anyone else was wearing because I loved, I loved what you were wearing so much. Yo, but it was a, it was a <laughs> you didn't see what it, maybe what everyone else won, but I did. It was a really exceptional night for, for dudes. I know. It was way more exciting time. than what the ladies wore. Yeah. It, it was, was a really gorgeous. good night for guys. Yeah. The purple pajamas that Daniel Kaluuya wore. Um, I love Daniel, uh, Dan Levy. Who else did I love? Oh, Riz always looks great. Oh, Riz looks good. Oh, your co-star Aldis. Aldis. Oh yeah, please. You know, showing <laughs> showing off the new guns for the for the movie. That yeah, yeah. It's it was a good night. It was a good night for the guys. 
Yeah, no, fantastic. Um, you've had an amazing award season. Um, but the one thing that I thought was really interesting was that you initially passed on this role, right? And you were reluctant to take this this role, Sam Cooke, in One Night in Miami. Um, what was going on in your head then? This will follow me all the days of my life. And, and it's for good. It's good for me. Good for good reason. I did. I almost passed on this because of my own fear, you know, and I didn't think I was worthy. And uh, Regina King believed in me. She saw something in me that I didn't see in myself. And uh, if, if Regina believed in me, I had to find a way to believe in myself. Right. So, so what did she do? Did she, did she give you a call? What, did she, she, was she like, what's up? Why, why don't you want to do this? Or what, what happened? What did she say? She gave me a job. She, Regina <laughs> gave me a job and she wanted to know because at that point in the process, they had been a little bit pursuing me. You know, there was interest in me. And uh, for a moment before we took another step together, she wanted to know if, um, if it was something that I really wanted to do. And I just had to clear it up for her. I was like, please know that this is not me being aloof. This is not me being like flippant or ungrateful. I really genuinely did not, do not think <laughs> that you are making the right decision. But if you want me to be your Sam Cook, you need to know that no one's gonna work harder than I am. I'm going to show up and try my best to deliver for you and for Sam, but yeah, she she needed to hear those words come out of my mouth, and uh, but from that moment, we you know we decided to continue to walk down the path together. And- well, let's talk about that a bit. Becoming Sam, because I can imagine you know he's a legend. So yeah. once you're you know getting over the the you know becoming a legend part, I mean, <laughs> what sort of research did you do? Um, and I also want to talk about what you did physically to get into the role, because I know there, there was there was a, there was a physical aspect to it as well. Okay. But um, tell me, tell me what your steps were and what your research was like. I would have loved a year. You know, I would have loved a year to prepare and get my body right. You know, Sam was Sam was different than me in every way. You know, I said I tried to slim down as much. I, the, I went through the even through the shooting process, you know, by the end of shooting, they had to pull my costumes in because I was successfully shedding pounds while we were shooting, which was good for me. I needed to do that anyway. (laughs) You know, I started with the singing because I thought that there was no better way to learn about the man than, you know, his primary form of communication. You know, Sam really connected with the world through his music. So that's where I started. Uh, but I, I really, I went in chronological order, which was something that I'd never done before as a fan. You know, I went back to those early gospel recordings with the Soul Stirs when he took over as a lead singer for the biggest gospel group in the country as a teenager, 19 years old. I started there. I just started listening through the years and I could hear the progression. I could hear how I mean, we're all cumulative, you know, we're all made up of all of our experiences before the moment that we meet the world, but listening to everything before you send me and then listening to the songs in between you send me and and what a wonderful world and chain gang. And finally, you know, where we end up where the change is going to come. There's so much life in between there and that he's also writing and recording other artists at that time. Anyway, I just tried to get my arms and my head around the chronology of it. So, of course, I knew his music, but I didn't know um, as much about his, I guess, strategy as, as an entertainer. And he went from being this gospel singer and very deliberately moving to pop 
um, because he knew that's the way it was going. And his the way that you played his character in the movie, I mean, he was very well aware of the strategies of being an entertainer and staying relevant and being successful. And I don't know. I mean, I feel like that's something that entertainers always have to think of. Did you did you find a connection there? Because you sort of, you know, obviously made the switch from theater to uh, to, to film and TV. And, you know, I'm sure that was there a strategy there as well? Yes. It was called, you know, how do I keep the unemployment line at bay for as long as possible? But my strategy was just to, after Hamilton, I thought the best use of my time would be to try to do all the things that no one would let me do before Hamilton. So that's why it's looked, you know, my career is focused on music and film primarily since leaving the show, because those were the hardest rooms to get into, uh, the toughest doors to knock down. But Sam was, he's the blueprint. You know, there really was no one else. You couldn't straddle the fence. So yes, there were there were a couple of Black artists that had had popular success in, in blues and in pop music. But, you know, he was singular in that he was, a, you know, the top gospel artist of his day, leaving gospel music behind to sing secular music, as it's called, meant at that time that you might never be welcome in a church again. You know, there's a an excommunication of sorts. He loses that audience. He loses that money, you know, to grab a hold of something else. As a matter of fact, the first song that Sam records, he records under a pseudonym, Dale Cook, because <laughs> he knew that once he really stepped out as Sam Cook, as Sam Cook, that he would no longer be able to count on this world and this genre of music that he'd really been doing his whole life. You know, Sam had a had a voice for the ages. He had one of the greatest voices of all time. And uh, crawling in the recordings, also, I I get a sense that he knew that he was not late to the party of his own talent. He knew what he's what he was capable of, and he he just didn't want to be limited. You know, in in any way, by he didn't want to be limited by genre or race or small mindedness. He wanted to go all the places that his talent could take him. And so he just devoted his life to that. Absolutely. Speaking of his voice and speaking of continuing to talk about inhabiting Sam, you have to do some prosthetic work, get Mm -hmm. some of that done. So can you you talk a little bit about the physical nature of your transformation and um, how that informed your performance? I knew, unlike, you know, uh, in past, I've, I've played historical figures in the past, Uh, you know, did Burr. But I knew with Aaron Burr, we all knew that no one walking into that theater was going to be expecting me to look and walk and talk like Aaron Burr. They were going to take a leap of the imagination with me. But with Sam, with Cassius, with Malcolm, Jim, you know, it was not lost on the four of us that on some level this was going to be about an illusion. This was going to be about how closely we could make that real for people. So I needed help. I needed all the help I could get. We, I had help from our hair and makeup department. Uh, I wanted to do a, it seemed to me anyway, that the two, like the biggest differences in Sam and I and our facial structure was the nose and the jaw. And so I wanted to do both a nose and a jaw. We had very little time for testing. So we did a testing of the jaw and the nose and the jaw looked great. But then 
once I started singing, once I started moving around, you know, over time it, it started to look wonky. So we needed a few more few more tests to make the jaw work. But the nose was doing something for Regina. She thought the nose was adding something. So it was very uh, subtle, but it was just a little prosthetic piece that I wore on the tip of my nose to change the silhouette of my face a little bit. Did that affect the singing at all or, or did it not bother you? No, it didn't. It didn't bother me at all. And then, uh, and then there was just the, you know, the physical ways of moving and things like that. You know, you kind of develop a vocabulary when you're playing someone else. You're trying to get as many little moments as possible of, uh, oh, that, that's the way he might hold a microphone or that's the way he stood or uh, he kind of cocks his hip like that a lot. I see a lot of pictures. I see that or, you know, whatever those things are. And there, and because because the period is in that, too, that's why you want to capture that stuff, because there's something about the time in which a person lived that that creates all of those things. And so it's it just it, it gives you information. You know, I just wanted to bring him as close as possible. Well, I think I think the performance was very well received. I think you've gotten some accolades. I think you did you did the the right thing and made the right choices. One thing I was wondering as as I was watching in this film, you know, obviously most of the world knew you before from Hamilton, which is theater, and this isn't your debut film role, but you haven't had a ton of film experience before One Night in Miami. So, what were some of the things that you had to sort of adjust for the sort of intimacy of film, as opposed to, I guess, the projections of being a theater star. I imagine it must, you must have to be a lot bigger in the theater than you are in film, but uh, you tell me. Yeah, I don't know. I think that I've been studying that negotiation and being sensitive to that in the last couple of films. And in this one anyway, I had to make sure that I watched the rushes, those dailies pretty often because I didn't want to play small. You know, I, I didn't want to, um, There is that. there is that thinking that on you know that film you have to be somehow smaller than on stage and I don't think you do actually you need to be full you know you need to be uh, committed and you need to be you need to be present but I don't think it's about size you know I think that real people are big you know some of the greatest movie stars of all time are not known for how small they were or how subtle they were they're big they're large they're like they they are theatrical there's something to see because I I wasn't we weren't thinking about awards or anything like that. I was, you know, we were just trying to trying to honor the material and honor the legacies of these men. So I kept a close eye on it. And Regina did, of course, too. But there was a theatricality to these guys in life. There's a theatricality, you know, to the men that lived. There's a theatricality to Kemp's script, you know, so to the style of the piece. And um, yeah, I didn't want to play small. I think that there was something about this piece, maybe, you know, that I had a little bit of a, an affinity for it. You know, like a, there was something simpatico about me and the piece because One Night in Miami, too, is trying to go from the stage to the screen. You know, so we were kind of trying to do the same thing. Speaking of, I guess, the interaction with the actors and with Regina, um, some of the most powerful scenes in the movie, I think, are, are, are between you and Kingsley Benadire, who plays Malcolm X. Can you talk to me about what it was like shooting those scenes? I mean, it, they were just electrifying, I thought. Oh, they, they, whew, they electrified me. Kingsley taught me so much. I think he's brilliant. Uh, brilliant is Malcolm X. And he was our leader, really. You know, the whole, the whole evening um, is propelled with Malcolm's energy. Malcolm sets the agenda. Malcolm sets the tone. We are all 
we thought we, we think we're there for caches, but we're <laughs> we are there to sort of you know Malcolm is setting the pace. We're all kind of playing catch up in that way. And Kingsley was you know he was that for us on set too. He was really just he was the leader. And yeah, I, I, there were moments when we were shooting some of those long passages where I would get the goosebumps, you know. And Quincy Jones says that goosebumps are God's lightning rod. You know, you can't fake goosebumps. You can't. And so I, I did think to myself, if I don't know what the camera's picking up, but if the camera's picking up any of the spirit that's flying around in this room right now, we might be in good shape. There could be some special moments in this movie. Thankfully, I think some of that is, it ended up in there. It was just, you know, we had the material. We had a few, you know, inspired performances on that set. We had a director who created a safe space for us to do some daring things and for us to play, you know, and try and try some stuff. And so you get you get good results when you have a couple of those things that line up. Can you talk about Regina a bit? Because I think she did such a fantastic job. And yeah, I'm not an actor, but I imagine being directed by a fellow actor, she would have a certain sensitivity to what you're going through and would be able to actually tell you things that work <laughs> because she knows uh, when directors tell her things that don't work. But can you tell me what it was like working with her? Yeah, you're, you're spot on about that. She kind of, um, she, all of her notes as a director were from the inside and from the outside is the way I felt. I felt like I, I got the benefit of her watching, you know, and so I got the benefit of her perspective as a viewer um, so her notes were, here's what it looks like. I don't know what it feels like, but here's what I see. And then whenever it was a, an acting note, you know, she was giving it to me as she would play Sam. You know, she kind of played him right alongside me. And, and when I've talked to the other guys in the film, they kind of all felt the same way. Kingsley felt like he created Malcolm with Regina. Uh, so I, I, I certainly felt like that. I felt like she was giving me good, good stuff. I had, I had a co-conspirator, you know, a, a co-creator for, you know, for this, for this part in, in Regina King. Well, it shows because I, I feel like this was such, um, an actorly showcase, um, mm -hmm. not just with your role, but with, with your co-stars. Um, but you are not just nominated for your acting. You're also <laughs> nominated for, for Speak Now. Mm -hmm. I read that you wrote Speak Now in the wake of George Floyd and everything that was happening. You also wrote it after you were done playing Sam. So what did that separation do for your process as far as writing this song? I mean, did you still have Sam, uh, you know, within you or, or had you shed by then? And, and what was that process like? I felt like he was pretty well gone. You know, I think I kind of I kind of look to I, I you know, I kind of look to a project of like you, you, this is the time that I have to to explore this and to be here, and it's intense. It's intense. There's very little coming out of it. You you go right back in and you go deep. And so anyway, when when a project ends, I, you know, I know there's some actors that like take the costumes or take pieces of the set. I'm like, I don't want to see the costumes again. <laughs> I don't want to say the lines anymore. You know, I I really am looking forward to letting them go. Um, so I, I did feel like myself again by the time I was writing the song. I watched Regina's beautiful film. She gave us back 
so there was the experience that I had on set, but the experience that you have on set is not a, that's not a film. You know, so much of a film happens in post. It happens in the edit room. And uh, what her and Tarek gave us back was, was just beauty. You know, they gave us back beauty. And so Sam and I just, Sam Ashworth and I, you know, my collaborator on the song, my co-writer on the song, we just wanted to honor that beauty. You know, we just wanted to make an offering. Uh, we knew that the ending credit song was going to come after a change is going to come, which is, you know, somewhat daunting. But in the same way that those four men get to occupy the space, you know, they occupied that small little hotel room in life, actually, in the same way that Eli and Aldous and Kingsley and I and Regina, for that matter, occupied the space on set. And there was room for everybody to, to be the best version of themselves. Nobody is diminished by that. We thought that we could do the same thing with the song, maybe. We could make an offering. If we made an offering from a pure place, that our song could occupy its own space and that it was not in competition with Blown in the Wind or A Change is Gonna Come or any of the other, quite frankly, any of the nominated songs this year. They could just occupy its own space as an offering. And, uh, and that would be that. Well, it's a beautiful song, and it definitely uh, is different from Change is Gonna Come. But I have to say that that scene where he sings that song, where you're, you're singing it as Sam. And for me, I mean, I just got the chills when I was watching that. I got teary. I mean, what were you feeling when you were filming that? Because I could just imagine that you, you can't be emotionless and <laughs> inspire all those emotions in other people. So what, what was going through your head and what were you feeling while you were doing that? Well... Thank you. That was just um, that was just one of the days where he felt really close, probably the closest that he'd felt the whole time. We shot that on my final day in New Orleans, and I really used not only all of my research, uh, all the all the hours that I'd spent working on Sam, all the time in the hotel room shooting with the guys. It was all underneath me. It was all there. I woke up that morning pretty scared pretty <laughs> clueless. Like I don't, I don't really have a plan. This is a big scene today. And I don't, yeah. you know, like, it's not like I have it choreographed. I don't know what I'm going to do, but man, was it like, you know, those acting teachers told me when I was in college, you know, that essentially you do all the work and then on the day you throw it away, you do all your research and everything. And then on the day you really do have to trust and be in the moment and, and give over to the inspiration and the feeling in the room and trust that all that stuff is there so that you're not on a day like that trying to show everybody your book report. This is what I know about Sam Cooke. On, the, on that day, you're trying to have an experience, man. Uh, we didn't do it a ton of times, you know? We, we probably did it. We probably shot that, I don't know, what, three hours maybe? And not all of it was, <laughs> was worth seeing, but I think that some of it some of it had the stuff in it or had enough of the stuff in it that, you know, that Regina could, could make it work. Oh, yeah, it just killed me. It was fantastic. I mean, amazing. And good luck to you. Thank you so much for taking the time for us. We adore the movie. We adore you in it. And thank you so much. My pleasure. Thank you. Well, that's all from us. Thanks to Joey and Leah, as always, for their insights. And thanks to you listening for joining us on this very long, very wild season of The Awardist. And don't worry, there's more on the way. The Awardist will be back very soon for a new season of All Things Emmys. Make sure you're all set up for that by subscribing. 
You can head to EW.com slash awardist for a complete overview of Sunday night's Oscars and follow me on Twitter at ClarissaNYC1, David at DavidCanfield97, Joey at Joey Nolfi, and Leah at Leah Bats. For now, we have to say goodbye, but award season never really ends. We'll be back before you know it. Thanks again for listening. Penguin Tomb Oscar winner 2022. <laughs>